Hello, I'm Yasmin Bilkis Brown. And I'm Yasmin Mesh Johnson. We are Y Square Pod. Welcome back to the pod, y'all. Uh, today we have a new conversation episode featuring someone who is a marketing strategist. She, so you should already have a hint of who she may be, she is also a communications consultant and works in both Ghana and Sierra Leone. She's known for her Make Sierra Leone Famous hashtag, and she hosts her own show. Without further ado, our guest is Vicky Thanks so much for being here with us today, Vicky. Um, would you just like to introduce yourself to our audience? I feel like you've already done such a great job. Oh. So that... Um, I used to describe myself as like the leader of the Move Back Home Club because I was probably one of the first people in my generation mm-hmm. who had left to come back. Um, I also used to describe myself as the biggest sweet smarts in a salon. In fact, that was the tagline for <laughs> my TV show. Because um, every time I spoke to people, they'd be like, just guess sweet smarts. Like, they didn't want to believe me because they'd be like, you're just like making it all sound good. It's not really as good as it is. So that's, you know, for the longest time, you know, I used to call myself the biggest sweet smarts. So I think I will use that here because I think the audience might relate. I love that. <laughs> On that note, this isn't actually a question I had written down, but how do you go about introducing yourself to new people? This is something I... It depends on where I am. Exactly. Like, do people locally or... I mean, Anywhere, just because you don't... Yeah, just depending on the job. setting. As uh, someone... I don't introduce myself with titles or whatever. Mm. I usually just say my name. I don't like to say my last name because it's a weird thing when you're a public personality that people know because the minute you say your last name, then, like... especially Because people know me by my first name and my last name, right? So if I went somewhere and I just say Vicky... Um, most times, yes, in Sierra Leone, so I'd be like, oh, Vicky Romo. Like, they know me with my first name and my last name. So, But I don't drop my last name because I feel like the minute I drop it, then it's going to be a conversation about Vicky Romo and not, like, the thing that I came there for. But I don't have titles. If I go to a business meeting, um, I rarely... I'm there already known, so I don't have to introduce myself. Um, I think what might be challenging is that I think that most people, depending on how you knew me originally, that's what you know me as. Some people think of me, some people know me only know me for the TV show. Some people know me, depending on when they knew me, mm-hmm. um, know me for the blog. So it, it really, really, um, it depends. But most times in Sierra Leone, I don't have to introduce myself, which I guess is like a... Or I say my name and somebody will go, hey, you know Sabi Vikiyamo? And uh, so no, then, like, no, 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 no. Oh so then I don't have to go into like in depth. I'm just like, yeah, okay, thank you. Let's move on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But to follow up on that, what about internationally? Like, uh, we know recently you went to BBC mm-hmm. uh, Kenya for mm-hmm. SheWord. How did you introduce yourself in different spaces, I guess? Um, outside of Sierra Leone, um, if I'm in a space that is a collective space, um, where people don't know me. Well, actually, for the BBC, you send your bio ahead, right? Mm-hmm. So they right. do know you. So when you come, you don't really say this is this. But I think on there, it's changed, actually. I think at sometimes when I was hosting the show, it's like TV host and marketing consultants. Um, other times I was there. Um, yeah, I think that was it. Like TV host, marketing consultants. If I had to introduce myself... I usually, and I had to like do it myself, I would say a woman who is most known for words, pictures, and um, ideas, mm-hmm. and also for just being unconventional, and that that makes people uncomfortable. What I feel like about my identity here is that I make people uncomfortable. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> most likely to make people uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> you start a lot of interesting conversations, yeah. to say the least. Um, so you were born and bred in Sierra Leone, but you spent some years in the States. Mm-hmm. How did you um, make the decision that you were going to come back to the continent, or did you always know that you were coming back? I always knew. So I, I lived in Sierra Leone until I was 10, and then I moved to Ethiopia. From Ethiopia, I moved to the U.S., and then I went to France for like a year, went back to the U.S., moved to Sierra Leone, left, moved back to the U.S., then moved to Ghana, and now I'm kind of between here and Accra. Since from the first day I got to the U, I when I got to the U.S., I was 13, um, and... I, it's a very special experience when your parents are in foreign service. So my mom was a diplomat in Ethiopia. So we had spent three years of living as like the children of diplomats. 
and that's a very it's a very privileged experience where you have chauffeurs and maids and I always joke about I used to have a bell over my bed that you just ring and the maid will come from the maid quarters to serve (laughs) yeah so it was that level so America was a downgrade for me Um, I went from going to like an international private school to public school and like this whole kind of high elite African international culture that we had that three years in in Ethiopia was now gone I was going to public school with kids who had never left their home state so I knew from the moment I got there <laughs> that I wasn't... This is not for me. This is, te- <laughs> this is temporary. Yeah, like, this is not the life, right? Yeah. This is not the life. What is this? My dad had two jobs. I had older brothers who were there who were also, like, finishing high school and just, like, about to go into the job market. Like, I never saw America as this, like, place that was so much better than where I was from. Mm-hmm. If, if anything, I felt like it was a downgrade. Um, to it was only when I came back I realized oh we're poor I didn't know that I came from a poor country like that was a whole (laughs) kind of um, a different lens that was acquired while I was away and then to return and you're like oh wow actually you know we're statistics and in these ways and they're all negative right Um, so no home was always a place that so I got my green card in 2003 and I got in 2003 I think sometime in December um, that same June, I was in Sierra Leone 2004 um, to volunteer, and I came every year. There's never been a year when I wasn't living in Sierra Leone that I could legally come and return to the U.S. that I didn't come home. I came every summer to volunteer with the Forum for Women Ad- Educationalists, FAWE, which was a school that was started by Christiana Thorpe, which is still on Fort Street. I have students that I taught here who have left university who are now professors. I have one student who's a professor at Jala that I used to teach English. So, I mean, yeah, like I was always going to come back and I've always been coming back. That's impressive. All yeah. right. Um, so, yeah, uh, what, um, as a TV show host and working in Ghana and Sierra Leone, what has been your, who has been your favorite interviewee and why? Jesus. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's a crazy question, actually. Because um, the ones that always stay with me are kind of the ones that like there was a lot of stress to get to it so for example once it was the MTV Music Awards African Music Awards and we went to Nigeria for it Um, this was the good times when you know phone companies will sponsor things and like fly you out so it was Zane at the time who was doing it across the continent. So Zane, which is now Orange, flew us out. Or was it the Airtel Mamas? I don't remember. It was like either Airtel or Zane. Um, And flew me and my producer to Nigeria to cover the MTV Music Awards. And we did, and I had to interview NECA, um, who at the time was like one of the people who was like upcoming artist of the year. Like she had had a big single. Everybody thought she was going to do amazing things. Um, and we were on the mainland and she was on the island and we had to navigate that in traffic and not knowing where we were and what we we're doing. So we got there late and, you know, she's a celebrity. You're coming to her. You're late. She's been waiting for you. And blah, 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 blah. And it was just such a tough interview because also, I, you know, there's this thing I get sometimes, which is when I come to an interview, this is how I'm going to talk. Right. And people make so many assumptions about who you are Mm. and where you're from and what's real. And I definitely felt during the whole time she was giving me this, like, you foreign Yankee girl vibe. (laughs) It was kind of condescending, right? It was kind of condescending, like, I'm from overseas and she's local, that kind of dynamic, which I thought was funny. So that interview was very challenging because I still have to be in the interview. I'm late. I'm feeling unprofessional. I've been scolded for being unprofessional. Um, We were lost. We didn't know if we'd make it. Like, it was really frazzled. But then when people watch it, they're like, oh my god, I love that interview you did with NECA. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) okay. I also, um, man, I got to interview John DeMello one time and that was like really great. He was a lot of fun and like the whole host of artists like Yvonne Nelson. Yvonne Nelson was actually a treat. Like she was like, you know, some people who interview them and they open up while you're doing the interview and you're like, oh my God, I love this person. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know who my favorite interview is. (laughs) But I could say in recent times, um, one that moved me the most was an interview I did in McKinney because again, I had just flew into Sierra Leone um, from the US, I was jet lagged. We came to Freetown, 
woke up the next day, first thing in the morning, drove to McKinney to interview this guy. It was hot. My car was overheating and broke down several times on the road. And where we went is they were melting um, sand and plastic to make um, outdoor tiles. So it was hot. Like, I was just not happy. Right. But And when he was talking, so I can do an interview where I don't hear anything the person says. And I don't process anything. I'm just like having the conversation. So I didn't really hear anything he said and nothing. But when we came in post-production and I actually watched it, I was like, oh my God, I love this guy. He's such a great guy. Like he's doing such good work. So like I got to discover him after we finished the show. And I, I think that, um, and that was actually one of our more popular ones that we uploaded last season. Okay. Um, I think it has like, yeah, it was one of like people really, really connected to him and who he is and what he's doing. So I would say most recently, he's definitely my favorite because I was in a bit of a funk when I interviewed him and then to mm-hmm. watch, you know, watch shit back and realize that like he really was such a great person. Nice. Oh, great. Um, given that you've interviewed so many people and being a public personality yourself, have you ever been starstruck? And if so, by whom? I've actually met a lot of celebrities. Um, but the person who, here in Sierra Leone, I've interviewed Isaiah Washington, like when he came here in Sierra Leone. I didn't interview, but I've met. And at some time, I was like buddies, chums with Jeffrey Wright. I don't know who you know is. He's an African-American actor. Most famous probably for, if you ever watch the remake of... Um, what's this movie called? Shaft, the remake that had Samuel L. Jackson. The mm-hmm. bad guy in it, he's like, in the movie, he's like Hispanic and he like stabs himself on the street. Like, like he's really like, whatever. That's his character. Okay. But when you Google him, mm-hmm. if you go and Google him, as soon as you see, you're like, oh, Jeffrey Wright. Like, he's really great. He was also in Hunger Games. Um, amazing, amazing. I met him here in Sierra Leone. But he was so chill. Like, it's so funny because the people that could potentially, I could be starstruck by when I meet them. They're so chill and down to earth that you just kind of feel like, oh, vibes, like, mm-hmm. oh, like what's good? Also, like, my best friend, one of my best friends in Ghana, his name is, everybody knows him, Manifest. Like, he's a mm-hmm. celebrity. And so because of that relationship, I meet a lot of famous people also. And, mm-hmm. like, but it's never the way you think it's going to be. It's always, like... Man, them are like, everybody's like, you know, like, cool. I'm like, oh, is that Adekule? Cool? Like, I'm like, I mean, can we take a selfie? Come over here and like, let's do that. So that does happen a lot. But no, I don't think I've ever been starstruck. I will say that the first time I got to meet President Bio mm-hmm. and speak to him on a one-to-one, like sit across from the table, it wasn't like an organized interview, but just like a conversation. Okay. I wasn't starstruck, but I was really, really like, shocked because of how kind of intelligent and dynamic he was in that conversation like I was really shocked because up until that point I had never had close contact with him never really heard him speak outside of like making a speech Mm -hmm. so to finally like sit down with him and to like exchange with him and engage him like I was I was just like oh okay that's my (laughs) president what's up okay um so so yeah I think for me it's always that the surprise of discovering someone in their like a, in a simple form where there are no frills they're just being my, themselves and it gives you an opportunity to see who they are okay. um that's usually like my best part but no never really starstruck um just cause you know I guess maybe it's also being a journalist. It's that, like, it's just another story. Mm. Um, and my job is to be a vessel for the story. I am not the story. Um, it's difficult sometimes, I think, for the person, the subject, because in an interview, you get really intimate with them. You really, like, push them. And sometimes I think after that, people don't understand that it really was just the story. And it lingers for them. And they think you're going to be best friends now. <laughs> da, da, da. Uh, yeah. But it really is just a story and then you move on and I think that can be difficult sometimes for a lot of people that I've interviewed um, because they tend to they don't they don't know the professional style of the work right they don't know I mean they know yes you've come to interview them but I think because they give you so much of themselves and they do feel connected to you and so they naturally think that like you have this bond Mm -hmm. but like it's just I'm (laughs) (laughs) I'm just the vessel yes I'm just the vessel like the story comes I'm like oh that was so great and then I moved on to another one Um, so yeah 
You touched on it briefly. Uh, what do you find the most challenging part of your job is? Um, it depends. The easiest thing for me to do is to have a conversation with a stranger. I feel like I was born to do that. And going to university to study journalism just honed in the skills in terms of like the science of storytelling. But I really think that this is my calling. I was meant to talk to people. If I wasn't doing journalism, I'd probably be a teacher. Um, so the easiest part is the part that people usually think is the hardest. Like, you know, like, oh, how do you just go and meet a stranger and just talk to them like that? But that's very easy. Um, I think the hardest part in this market is that people are afraid of vulnerability and very afraid of openness and honesty. So that um, the minute you actually, when you reach out to people for conversation, you would be shocked at the people who like will be like, I know I can't do this, I can't talk. Like the the way that here people don't lean forward for conversation. They don't want you to know who they are. Mm -hmm. They don't want you to see them, mm -hmm. right? And so there's this constant fear that when even when I want to interview people, I spend I have to spend so much time counseling them to help them understand that like why this is in their best interest and why, you know, the community needs to know why their story is important and needs to be told. So that oftentimes is like, because even like you're like, this person ought to know, like, this is, a, but no, even like the most educated, the most exposed people are, um, actually feel like they're usually harder to talk to mm -hmm. than the average person that, um, you know, the masses, right? Like if I go to a rural community and I want to interview a farmer, He's just going to tell you what it is. He's not hiding anything. Right. But if you're in the city in Freetown and you call somebody who's the something, something of something, you know, there so much goes in their mind already. <laughs> like, ah, and yeah. they're afraid. So I think the hardest part is that, of course, on the kind of production side in terms of financing and capital. Now, I probably have gotten more financing than most people in this line of work. Um, as an individual, not like, you know, like my company, but as an individual doing a project, I've probably been able to source more funds for what I'm doing than most people. However, it still shocks me how um, little financing there is for this kind of work, that mm -hmm. um, people just do not see the value locally of storytelling and content producing. And yet, everywhere I go outside of Sierra Leone, I see the power of it. And when I'm here, when I see the amplification of other people's stories, I'm like, I know exactly what happened and who made that happen. And it was because somebody who's from that country, who's from the inside, made sure that somebody who's from their own country got play. That when all these lists, I mean, you see this all the time, like lists of the most famous this, the most this, this, this is when they're making, oftentimes you see Sierra Leone is not on the list. Yeah. And a huge part of that is because the same people who should be financing people like us who produce content so that we can tell their stories, they don't do it. And that's why they don't make it to the list. Right. And that's mm -hmm. why nobody knows them. That, that's why people think like we don't have anybody in Sierra Leone who's doing anything. Because when those people get in the position to make decisions to promote storytelling and storytellers and concept production, they don't. So nobody's going to know that we have phenomenal engineers, that we have mm -hmm. phenomenal innovators and this and this and this. Because... You're not financing your storytellers. The only people who get financing for content are people who are telling stories about politics, mm. right? Um, or who are telling stories about mining companies. Like, these very, very vested interests. Um, if you look in our newspapers, you do not find stories about entrepreneurship. You do not find stories about, you know, grass to gray stories. You do not find stories about up-and-comers. You do not find stories about people who are going off the beaten path. Like, you just do not find these stories at all. They're just not there. TV is no different, right? And that's ultimately because it's a pay-to-play thing and the people who have the money to pay, they're not thinking about all the different ways in which they can create impact in the industry. Mm -hmm. But it, it's for their demise because at the end of the day, I always tell people like, me, Vicky Ramon, me, I'll tell my story. It will be fine. It will go where it needs to go. <laughs> but you are here and you're doing something really amazing. The world needs to know, but you can't tell that story because you're not doing what you need to do to make sure people like us can do the work and people like you guys too. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of talent in Sierra Leone. We just don't have the support, Absolutely. which is so frustrating. Absolutely. So frustrating. Yeah? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, especially with um, 
uh, amplifying stories, mm -hmm. and you told us about your favorite story about the um, the guy mixing the sand and the plastic. Mm -hmm. It seems like a lot of your life, personal and professional, is online. How do you get to detox when um, a huge chunk of your life is for the world to yeah. see? I've actually taken in the last year. So I spent three years trying to figure out um, what I wanted to do with my platforms. Okay. Did I want to continue to both to be both public and public personal and public professional and public community. And uh, you probably may or may not have noticed, but in the last year, 12 months, my public feed has changed significantly. Mm -hmm. So you will see less of my child there. You'll see less of people I care about. You'll see less of me in bikinis, less of me doing the things that I do, less exercising. I'm still doing all of those things, but you just don't see it because, and it, I had to, so one of the things that, and this is something I plan to write about. It's on the draft, whatever. Draft meaning in my brain, not written, but it's in draft. <laughs> is that, so when famous people in other countries, let's say, you know, in the US, in the UK, the people who've grown up, we've grown up with, the Beyonce's of this world, the like, you know, famous people, um, it is okay for them to be fully themselves digitally because their wealth protects them from the everyday people. They go to places where regular people don't go. They'll never see any of us. Mm -hmm. And when they see us, they'll have bodyguards, right? They're fully protected from the public, right? So it's this far distance thing. Now, for somebody like me who's in Sierra Leone, the thing and what I realize is that like, every time I post something personal online, it actually, I have no protection. From the public right and i would get a lot of just like crass things from men constantly and the volume was just ridiculous and then it would get to a point where even the people that you've men that you would think are like normal <laughs> like normal men like the kinds i've had i'll never forget this because it literally just blew my mind i got a whatsapp message from somebody i'd only met one time and the time between the WhatsApp message and the um, the first time I met him mm -hmm. had been over a year. And I met them in a professional capacity. They were part of a panel that I was on, and that was it, right? And then I noticed that from time to time they'd send me, so they'll watch something I post online, and then they'll send something to me about it. <laughs> um, and I wouldn't respond, right? And then... For months and months, this would go on. I still just wouldn't respond. Then they said they wanted to do some business, and can I blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, I'll have somebody from my company contact you, blah, blah, blah. That was that. Then within that same week, oh, I really want to talk to you about this thing. I'm like, you know, I don't meet men for non-value conversations. Like, I just can't meet you. Oh, can't we hang out? I'm like, no, I actually can't do that. Within, like, two days, he sends me a message, and I'll never forget this. And it was like, oh, I posted something about how women who had written a piece about how women who are opinionated etc cetera, etc cetera, that like they're the most hated um and this was after some incident where like because i disagree with some juju rah, 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 the people were like it was a lot of misogyny against me um and i wrote about this this issue about how like if you have an opinion and you refuse to back down you're a woman like you're the most hated because people expect you to be able to like lower yourself and be small and like be controlled and he sent me a message, and I'll never forget this, because it totally, like, I cried. <laughs> like, that's how upsetting it was. He read that, and he sent me a message that said, I love strong women um, like you. I think about you, you when I masturbate. Oh, my days. Wow. This person is a lawyer, he's well-respected, he's on things, he heads things. And I think on the surface, people probably view him as one of the more progressive people in Sierra Leone. I actually cried when I got that message because I was like... You're no better than the rest. No, it's not about being better. It's just that I was like, I realized that like, I, it was like more like exhaustion, right? Mm -hmm. I cried because I realized that there was nothing, there's nothing I can do. There's literally nothing I can do to protect myself, right? That just as a woman, like, I'm constantly going to be at the receiving end of these things. Like, I was just really, really exhausted. It wasn't like, oh, I feel like I'm better than that. I shouldn't. I'm just like, no, like, it's not about me. It was more like a sadness about how, like, it really is not about me. It's just about men and women in this country. And 
no matter what to this guy I'm just a woman for the taking somebody for his pleasure he doesn't give a shit and I think that that's the same for the majority and so it just affirmed also this thing that I had been feeling about how yeah I'm just gonna put less of me online because there's no protection when I say the kinds of stuff like the kinds of stuff it's like mind-blowing where you're like and also, I think I was in the state of mind where I thought, oh, I just am going to do whatever I want because that's some kind of freedom, right? Um, but in this environment, freedom is, freedom is not freedom, right? Because sometimes your freedom then is a reaction to things and not an actual freedom. It's like you're doing something to prove that you're free, right. which in itself is like you're playing towards and playing for. Uh, to prove, oh, I'm free, I can do this, da, 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 da. and I'm like, you know, I'm just not going to put myself online in that way because there's no protection for, it's, it was definitely a gender thing, there's no protection for women here, and also people judge you, and it can affect your business, and your family's here, and they get calls, etc., etc., and, you know, I had to ask myself, is it more important for me to be free online or for me to be free, period? And it's definitely for me to be free online. And I don't have to manifest my freedom in that way digitally. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that also, for what, what, why am I online? What is my purpose? My purpose is to use my platform to amplify stories about the work I'm doing, the projects I have, and my community. And my personal life isn't really a part of that and doesn't have to be a part of that for me to do that. So I'm still myself. I'm still doing all the things I usually do that I would put online, but I just don't feel like the internet is a safe space, safe space for a Sierra Leonean woman who also has to go to offices and have meetings and also has to lead a company and also is trying to push this community to be more empathetic, more inclusive, and all of these things. It's just that people don't have the nuances and the capacity to be that layered and to understand that identity is 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 layered and is an onion. You know, they just want you to be this thing and this thing. And for the goal that I have which on my digital platform, which is really more so about the community, I'm like, I'm willing to forego that freedom of putting myself out there because it doesn't really limit me in what I can do. I'm still free. It's just that now I'm having a more curated um, platform specifically for the purpose of amplifying stories for the community. Great. Okay, that's good. How, um, how do you go about making sure you have a well mental state? Do you have a self-care routine? Um, so I talk a lot. That includes talking to myself a lot in private. I write a lot. I record voice notes. Um, so I don't really see my best friend a lot, but I send a lot of voice notes to them. So if at night, like there's some, cause usually during the day I don't process anything. Um, I only process things at night when I'm not working. So for example, I was in Bo, um, last weekend and during an interview with a doctor, someone died right there. Um, and a family was crying and I didn't stop. And I just continued doing my interview because I'm a journalist and that's what I do. Um, but when I came home, it was really hard for me because I realized that in that moment, I had made a decision that was, for me, inhuman. You know, if somebody dies, you have to acknowledge the death. Um, but I was also doing my job, and that's how what I've been trained to do. And so in those moments, yes, like, I come home, and, like, I'll weep like a baby, and, like, I'll send a voice note to my best friend, like... Um, I'm really struggling with this. So there's a, I have a lot of conversation in that way. I also, I guess, one of the perks of being an entrepreneur is that if I don't want to get out of bed tomorrow morning, I will stay in bed till I no longer, <laughs> you know, till I feel like I want to get out of bed. Mm -hmm. So in that, in that capacity, yes. And also, yes, writing for me, producing content is a huge part of my mental well-being and my processing of things excuse me, making sense of the world and um, my place in it, my community, my relationships. Um, sometimes I don't really process anything or deal with it until I've written about it. It's in the process of writing that like, I'm like, oh, so that's how I really feel about it. Okay. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and a lot of healing comes from that. And also, the most important thing is I don't take myself very seriously at all. And I think people don't know that about me, is that I'm very 
<laughs> I, I don't take myself very seriously and I think you have to be that way especially in this environment where um, people tend to take things so seriously and, da, da, da. and so people are like oh you know I, I don't know how you do it it's because every day your name your name your name people are just talking about you they're insulting you I'm like ah, it's great like my my perception of who I am the idea of who I am what makes me is not based on anything that's happening digitally like i always tell people that like whether you like it or you dislike it it doesn't impact how i feel about myself right so if i post something that gets a thousand likes it doesn't impact how i feel about myself at all mm. what it just tells me is it gives me data for analytics to be able to say okay this model of this thing creates a lot of engagements how can we replicate it for future use as for me it does not like Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I mean? Um, starting the C19 Dignity Project, being able to raise $50,000 in four weeks doesn't impact my perception of myself at all. It's just the work. Um, and yeah, I don't take myself seriously. I don't think I'm better than anybody else <clears throat> in any way. What I do think I have over a lot of people in Sierra Leone is that I understand my people. And that understanding allows me to do things that I think a lot of people can't do because they don't know who the audience is. Mm -hmm. They cannot, um, they don't know Sierra Leoneans, right? Um, I understand Sierra Leoneans. So when I communicate with Sierra Leoneans, I know how to talk to them. Mm -hmm. And I know how to get the results that I want and the outcome that I want. And I think that actually is what makes me really good as a job, on my job, both as a journalist, both for comms and marketing, like whatever it is, it's especially in Sierra Leone, understanding the, the Sierra Leonean person. Mm. Um, and that's also because I've done empathy maps, right, for men and women here, just trying to understand who we are, what we think about, what people care about. And sometimes the, when I do the empathy map, I don't like the person that I've created as like, <laughs> like this is not somebody that I like mm -hmm. or that I, um, I can relate to for as an individual. But I can see them. I understand what they're thinking, what their concerns are, what their fears are. And I can speak to that. And that's the most important thing. Amazing. You mentioned um, the C19 Dignity Project, which mm -hmm. is currently ongoing. Uh, how did this come about? Oh, it's, it's a usual kind of... It's a typical me, how I am. It's just like... It, I see something and I decide, oh, I don't like this. This shouldn't be. Mm. Um, my sense of <laughs> right and wrong... Is like very strong sense of like what is right and what is wrong, what's acceptable and what uh, what's unacceptable. Um, and a Facebook friend of mine, Wahid, uh, had posted something about you know doctors not having well hospitals not having what they needed for COVID basic things. And to me, the post in itself was unacceptable. That it's unacceptable that a doctor has to post to ask people to come down to a hospital to like that should not happen. Mm -hmm. Unacceptable. It's shameful. That's kind of how I felt. I'm like, okay, let me go there. Went there, saw, and they didn't have. And I was like, okay, well, um, this is unacceptable. <laughs> what can I do? So the first job that I had in undergrad was in the office of annual giving. And um, I was really good at fundraising. So we just call people and ask them, hey, would you like to donate to the school? And so when I came there, when I went there, the first thing I thought about is this needs to happen we need to fix this. How can I fix it? And then secondly, if this is the situation at the major referral hospital, the biggest hospital in the country, it's probably worse in other places. And then secondly, can I come up with an idea where I can connect people who don't know what to do right now but want to act during COVID and support the effort and where there is need? And I was like, well, you know, that's what I want to do. Like, I was just sure that there are people who, who are thinking oh, I want to do something, I want to help with COVID and not know how. And then I was like, oh, I'm just going to tell them this is the how and then create that um, interface. And that's what I did. And so I called some people up. I called five people who I knew if I called them because I was the one calling them that they would say yes. Um, and also because I knew that these were five men and they're five men that I respect and that I know that when they see my call and they pick my call, 
I'm just another human. Like, these are men who I know see me as a human being and not as a vagina. So I could call them <laughs> and say exactly. I, I mean, they could have said no, but I felt like they'd say yes um, because I was asking and I never ask. I never ask anybody for anything. Well, I, I never actually ever made a fundraising phone call in my life in Sierra Leone, nor have I made a fundraising phone call since I left undergrad in 2006. So, yeah, I hadn't done it. But I was just like, yeah, let me just call because this is, like, urgent. And I want that they needed to have it soon because they have patients. So I called and, you know, like, I'd give one million, I'd give two million. And then, of course, I call my friend Rhonda, who since the day I came to Sierra Leone and started doing my show, she's been one of the most supportive women and supportive not just financially but supportive with, like, actual, like, real support. When I was doing my show... Initially, I was shooting at the office nightclub, which is now closed. And I remember I'd wanted to build a set. Randa had a furniture company called City Plaza. And a friend, a mutual friend of ours, Nunu, who's no longer here as a photographer, introduced us and said, you know, Vicky, let me take you to Miranda. Went to Miranda. Randa's like, sure. Every week, she brought furniture over and, and sent people to set it up over there. She's always been incredibly supportive. So I called her and she's like, you know what? Let me, Vicky, don't worry. I'll call my this, 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 this. She also has an NGO called Friends of Sierra Leone, Friends of Education for Sierra Leone, which I was one of the founding members for years ago when we used to do the Toke Regatta, mm-hmm. uh, which was an amazing experience, and I hope that comes back after. <laughs> Randa, I hope you hear me. I hope that comes <laughs> back after this, because it would. I would love to go back to the Toke Regatta days. Anyway, so I called her, and she was like, you know, what's the cost? And I told her the equipment. I was like, I don't know the cost. And she was just like, you know, we'll just do all of it. So she and her group gave us all the money for all the equipment for that one facility, which means that all the other pledges that I had gotten then were additional money, Mm -hmm. right? Because this need had been met. I was like, well, we have this money now, which at the time was like now 11 million that I had raised with phone calls. So I was just like, well, maybe there's more need. And um, it just so turned out those doctors that we helped contacted other doctors. Mm-hmm. We created a WhatsApp group and then that started the whole process. But it started from this idea that just knowing that some things are unacceptable. And I feel like in Sierra Leone, doctors should have what they need. It's unacceptable that they don't. And if I'm in a position to make sure that they have, I'm going to do it. That's such a great way to use your platform. Absolutely. Honestly. So, um, you talked about um, different challenges um, throughout your career. If you could start over by any chance, what is something that you would have applied that you know now or done something differently? What would I have done differently in my career? Um, I would have built this office sooner. Um, my when I came back to Ghana in 2012 2013 I was making really good money um I think my first year there I made like sixty thousand dollars um which on the continent is a lot of money I don't know if it is but on the continent's a lot of money and I started thinking about and I wasted a lot of money um like it was basically like I was like oh I'm moving out my mama's house I'm gonna go pay rent Boom, $800 rent, four-bedroom apartment. Ooh, I'm getting a chef. Boom, another 500 Like, I was living Lalalicious. Every other weekend, I was at a hotel, like, living it up with my then-boyfriend. Like, oh, you want champagne? Boom, I don't even drink. <laughs> <laughs> like, I wasted a lot of money mm-hmm. in those initial years when I could have been thinking about making investments. Right. Um, and if I could do anything different is that instead of wasting all of that money, I would have started looking for ways to invest my money so that I would give myself an edge and more financial security. Um, the ultimate game changer in my financial outlook on life was, of course, getting pregnant. Um, once I decided to have a child, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> boom that's over (laughs) so um then I was like well as soon as I got pregnant I started I decided I needed to save five hundred dollars every month um for whenever my baby was born um so I started doing that committed to that which I did which really helped me because when I as a consultant when I went to maternity leave you know you don't get any benefits or whatever whatever you're pretty much on your own Mm -hmm. so once I did come off of when I went to maternity leave it was that purse of money that I'd saved that really really helped me I mean I still had one of like my major gigs but then the size the size of it contracted because once I went to maternity they're like well we don't know if we need this and this this and this and this so we're bringing it down um so yeah, if I could change anything, it's like how serious, 
how quickly I got serious about making investments um, and definitely infrastructural investment into something like a building, which is what I'm doing now, uh, because it totally changes the game in terms of what's possible. For example, if I decide to close my office now, I could still rent the space and that's like passive income for me. You know what I mean? We have a hall here that we're about to start doing electricals on. And then I've just renovated, I'm renovating the end because my dad wants to move his office here. And I'm thinking of floating to the second floor if, you know, I get the capital. But the point is I could have been doing this a long time ago right. to be further along. So, but, you know, at the end of the day, it was all part of the experience and now it's part of my story. But it, it's definitely that if I, if I, I should have gotten serious about wealth, generating wealth and creating wealth for myself much earlier than I did. Okay. Mm-hmm. Piggybacking off that, you've spoken about um, wishing you made investments earlier. I know we've had um, a few conversations about this in the past, Mm -hmm. hence why I'm asking you. So uh, from your blog to VRC uh, Marketing, Sweet Salon, and the Vicky Remote Show, Mm -hmm. you've achieved a lot over the last 10 years. What is your stance on ownership and legacy? Oh, well, I mean, yeah, it all, I mean, this idea of, investing earlier is about creating wealth that I could pass on um, and just creating wealth for myself but also creating wealth for my child. The building that we're sitting in right now is something that my grandmother had started um, for her building school. That's her legacy that she left behind and my family had left it in disrepair for so many years and this whole compound is now in construction because I kind of just woke up one day and I realized that my grandparents they bought this huge piece of land, right? They built a home, my grandmother did more, she built this. But like my parents' generation, my mother and her siblings, their generation, because, so all of them grew up in the US. So my mom went to the US, all of her siblings went to the US. There are five of them, only one of them moved back to Sierra Leone and that's my mom. Her four siblings are all in the US and like, well, one of them passed away, but they've all made lives elsewhere. Children away, like nobody's here, right? And I realized that like, if we don't ever look at what our grandparents left us, their parents left them, as wealth, we really have lost the plots, right? When you think about grandparents, they came from the provinces. So my uh, my mother, um, my maternal grandmother is from uh, Magbele, which is in Potoko, and my grandfather is from Binsi. And... They came from, you know, these are village people, right? Village people, villagers come from farming families, families that are like, yes, okay, ruling house, whatever, whatever from, for both of them. But they're still like, these are village people. When you talk about Africa, people in the village, your ancestors, these are, and they in their lifetime were able to move from that, get an education, come to Freetown, work, buy land, build property, send all their children overseas, right? So all of their children. That, in the way, is the African dream, right? So the American dream is a different version, but the African dream is leave the village, come to the city, and you make it, and making it is you own property in the city, and your children go overseas. In one generation, they were able to accomplish that. And the fact that we, my parents' generation, had not built anything on top of that legacy mm. really is something like disturbed my soul. Like, you mean these people who, in that time, colonial days, they already accomplished that. Some people, most of our people on the continent are still trying to make that African dream happen. You, your parents, they already made, my grandparents got married in England. You know what I mean? Like, that's the level of, they really lived a different kind of African dream during a time when Africans, for the most part, did not have that access. So we, it's like, you are denigrating their legacy if you don't build on what they created. So my thing for the next three to five years is this structure, how can we make it more? How can we fix the land, the landscape? How can I create wealth for myself that um, also for my family? Like, I think that it is my job to show my parents and her siblings what is possible in Sierra Leone because there's a huge thing of um, like yeah peep salon it, people get to a point where they think like 
are just not able mm-hmm. because they see the news and this and that and what we tend to amplify is negativity, right? So mm-hmm. you, especially if you're not here, you consume that. Away. I need this country. Yeah, I'm not going able. I'm not going to do this. It's not a place you want to invest. To be really honest with you, but I think that I'm in a unique position to show them my family and also I think other people will see um, that it is possible here it really is is it difficult absolutely are you gonna feel like pulling your hair out yes because right now I even have gray hairs that I didn't have last year um, is it a long process absolutely is it going to like your soul and your spirit are you going to question if you're crazy yes all of the above but this is how you build a country it's how you build a community it's about people who the pilgrims right it's about people <laughs> who go settle in the west and you strike for oil and like that and that like this is how you build a nation you have to stay you have to fight it is difficult all the time everywhere and in every place but the people who make it the people who succeed are the people who stick it out and so i'm just like you know i'm going to show that if i stick it out in sierra leone anybody sticks it out here um, you will make a lot of mistakes, but it is possible here. And we, the only way it's going to be possible is because we don't squint. <laughs> mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, we have nothing to show. That's true. That's true. That's very true. I feel like if I'm ever feeling down, I'll just listen back to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, you will feel down. The thing is, you will feel down and you will feel like quitting. But I don't think that that feeling is different no matter who you are in the world or no matter where Where you're from. I mean, you know, yes, I grew up in the U.S. I have all my brothers there now. I'm the only one who's here. My dad is there. My mom is in Ghana. My uncles, my the I was referencing, they're all away. Nobody really in my media family is here, right? But, I mean, even my brothers who are in the U.S., I can't... Yes, they have their jobs, right? So... Economic activity, economic opportunity in the U.S. is what is the most important thing, right? You have jobs, and I think that's why people stay. But I would be surprised if you asked any of them, most people in the diaspora, that if you could do this job in Sierra Leone, right, and earn this money, would you stay here or would you go home? 99.9% of the people would say they'd come home. Because they do want to be home, yeah. right? Like, people want to be home. Mm-hmm. They just want the same kind of opportunities and the same kind of quality of life. But I don't think we're ever going to create those opportunities or have that quality of life if we don't come. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying the answer is primarily with the diaspora. I'm not saying that only people who come back. But I truly believe that it is a question of values and not that people who are here don't have values like people who've never left of course they do but i sometimes think that there's something about being in sierra leone permanently that breaks your empathy meter right that it forces you to have to break your empathy meter so you don't feel pain and suffering because there's so much of it and so if you've never left more than likely the trauma of the war the trauma of poverty and all of the extremes that are here you have had to break your empathy empathy meter so you can survive and stay here Mm -hmm. so it is easier than for you to overlook a lot of things because this is you've broken your empathy empathy meter you don't know you can't feel it whatever right so it needs to take people from the diaspora who come back whose empathy meters are not broken right who are going to see these things that have been 30 year old problems and say oh my god i'm shocked right why the people who are here who've been seeing it for things like right so we need more of that new blood of people coming who are going to see and it's going to look like oh my god this is the worst thing you need that energy you really really need need that energy you need that new lens because it, it is what reawakens people's slowly like starts to repair the empathy meter and i think that's what the C19 Dignity Project has been and is doing over these four weeks. I think people who had, who are here, who love this country, who love their communities, but they had to break their empathy meter to survive. They're seeing what I'm doing. They're seeing what the other volunteers are doing. And they're seeing what the, from the stories that I'm telling, what frontliners are going through. And it's making them think, fuck, I have to do something. <laughs> you know, I have to help. Mm-hmm. And... And they all know that this is what the hospitals have been for years and years, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that they don't care. It's that they have had to stop caring to be able to survive here, 
right? Mm-hmm. But I am still in that generation who believes that fuck a survival. I'm trying to thrive. Like we about to be like, you know, have to be about it, about it. Like everything should be should be flourishing. I don't want to survive. Mm-hmm. I want to flourish. Mm-hmm. And so it's like. So the basics and the fundamentals have to be there and we have to do our part. So yes, it does take people coming in, people from the diaspora coming in mm-hmm. with their new bright eyes and naivete and just like, oh my God, light's not here. Ah, what? You know, you need that energy. Yeah. You need mm-hmm. that energy because somebody who has that energy maybe will move them to action. And that action will inspire others. If we all accept that the status quo is just this bleak, um, dead thing that isn't going to grow, that isn't going to change, that isn't going to anything, then what's the point? Right? We need our people like us. We are the ones that are going to save this country mm-hmm. because we're the ones that hold the mirror up and we say, I know we're all looking at this and what we're looking at isn't good, but we can change the picture. And the way we do that is by changing the decisions that we make, the actions that the, we, we take, and the way we treat each other. Okay. The end. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> so we usually have guests plug whatever um, they're doing right now uh-huh. or what they want people to know about. Mm-hmm. I feel like you touched on anything, but we'll give you a okay. few seconds to plug anything, your socials or your, sure. socials or your projects. I would like to plug young content producers like you guys. Um, not just you two but there's so many of you and to be really honest it's so beautiful to see because I'm probably gonna cry because I'm a crier and this is a crying corner anyways (laughs) it's that you know I moved back to Sierra Leone in 2007 and for a lot of people I was just crazy like they I mean I think people still think I'm crazy but (laughs) but like now they're used to it there's something about the person who says you know my local is fascinating my local is beautiful and my local is worthy and holds it up to the world and says look at it isn't this beautiful right and i think that that's what people like you do Mm -hmm. and that's what all of the content producers and i i just really love to see i don't always like what you're putting out i don't agree with it whatever but i love that it exists because it feels like there is a movement and so if I want to plug, I'm just like, yeah, people should support. They should share. They should comment. They should like. If you're working in an office and you know that there's a you know, budget for marketing, you know, include people like you who are in the digital space in that. Include people. Bring other people to the table. Make those calls. Make them plug people in so that these people who are now in the fringe can become part of um, the center and make room for them. It's very, very important. So that's my plug. My plug is that... We all have a responsibility to... I didn't have any support when I was here. I was, like, the only one. So it's very important to me that, like, we create the support structures for other people, to, like you guys, to grow and thrive. Because you, what happens to people like you is that you leave, right? People leave. Because if you don't feel valued and you don't feel appreciated and you can't sustain yourself financially, you have to leave. Right, and I, I really would like that people don't leave yeah. <laughs> because then I'd be here by myself. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's my plug. My plug is that we need to actively and intentionally, especially in the digital space, for content producers and storytellers, promote them, support them, and make sure that they have the things that they need to continue to do the work that they're doing. Facts, facts. Yeah. And also, we'd like to say thank you to you of for course. paving the way. Thank you very much, yes. You paved the way for sure. Um, if you want to find more information about Y Square Pod, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Y Square Pod. Thank you for tuning in, guys, and see you next time. Bye. Bye.